0: Um, A practice that I've developed thus far, but today I'm going to do that. Today's sermon is is in particularly designed because this is a, a, a day in which we're honoring our graduating seniors, and the reason I'm going to do that today is because some, if not all, of these seniors did not get to experience a graduation ceremony. They didn't have to sit through a long, boring commencement speech And I thought to myself, I can do that. (laughs) So, though I do not intend for it to be excessively long, I do not intend for it to be boring, but I do intend for it to be biblical because I believe there's some important messages in scripture that can be geared and tailored to particularly our graduating seniors, but to all of us as well. In fact, when I think about commencement speeches, I kind of view them as the closing remarks of high school. A commencement speech is kind of like the last opportunity for an educational institution to share some wisdom, some advice, some encouragement to those students who are leaving them. And so I think of them in terms of closing remarks. And if you journey throughout Scripture, one thing that's interesting to me is there are a lot of great biblical leaders who provided some closing remarks to those that they will be leaving behind when they're out of the picture. Moses did it. Joshua did it. David did it, Elijah did it, Jesus did it. And so this morning, what I want to do is I want to focus in on on three biblical leaders who had some closing remarks for their their followers. And I want us to consider how those closing remarks apply to us today, and in particular to our graduating seniors as you make this transition in life. And let's start with this one. Let's start with Moses. Because Moses instructed the Israelites— To embrace God's word in his closing remarks. If you will, open up to the book of Deuteronomy with me and look at Deuteronomy chapter 32. Deuteronomy chapter 32. This is, Deuteronomy chapter 32 has some last teachings imparted by Moses to the Israelites before his time of leadership comes to an end. And look at what he had to say to them in verse 46 and 47 of Deuteronomy chapter 32. He said, Take to heart all the words by which I am warning you today, that you may command them to your children, that they may be careful to do all the words of this law, for it is no empty word for you, but your very life. And by this word you shall live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. See, in his closing remarks to the Israelites, Moses placed the emphasis on God's word. And this should not be surprising to us since He's the guy in Scripture who received God's initial word. And he's the guy who dispensed God's initial word. The why, why should we embrace God's word? I'm not telling you anything you've never heard before. We should embrace God's word, number one, because of who authored it. Think about 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 and 17, where we're told, That all scripture is breathed out by God. All scripture is breathed out by God. There have been some great authors over the years. From William Shakespeare to Charles Dickens to Mark Twain to J. R. R. Tolkien to Dr. Seuss to J. K. Rowling. Great authors, right? But we're not talking about just any ordinary author. We're talking about the one who's not just the author of the Bible, but the author of life and the author of salvation. We're talking about the one who knows the intricacies of your life, the one who knows how tomorrow will play out already, and the one who transcends time and space. We're not talking about an ordinary author. We're talking about God. We should embrace his word because he authored it. But we should also embrace his word because of what it promises to accomplish for us. So going back to that 2 Timothy chapter 3 passage, verses 16 and 17, where it begins by saying, All Scripture is breathed out by God. It goes on to say, And it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Paul says that that God's word is beneficial for us because it completes us. It instructs us regarding who we ought to be. It corrects us when we veer off course. It educates us on who God is. It reveals his will to us. And it equips us to function to the best of our ability. So we should be be embracing God's Word because of what it promises to accomplish for us. It is the one thing that can bring to completion who we are supposed to be. And So we should embrace it. You know, there are a lot of self-help books out there. Maybe you've bought a few of those. You've got them lying around your house. Entire sections of bookstores are dedicated to the genre of self-help. You have experts on various arenas of life who provide their expertise, their scholarly advice on how to resolve particular problems or, or uh, how to live a better life in a particular arena of it. God's Word is the ultimate perfect self-help book. You'll never find a better guide for life. You'll never find a better roadmap. The fact that God's Word is an instruction manual, a, a self-help book, a roadmap— is another reason we should be, we should embrace it. Because it will get you through this life. Like I said, you're not hearing something new today, right now. But here's the problem. A lot of you high school kids that are graduating are going off to college, and you're going to be devoted to some amazing areas of study. In fact, I I was looking over our our little uh, insert that we put in the bulletin that tells what all these kids are going to school for, and I'm amazed. Because they're going to be studying some subjects that I'll never be able to comprehend, nor do I want to, for that matter. There are some amazing um, degrees being pursued among this group of students. And you're going to be dedicated to study among those subjects. But are you going to be just as dedicated to your study of God's Word? Are you going to embrace that text as much as you'll embrace all of the scholarly material you'll be uh, subjected to over the next four years or more? Because God's Word matters that much. We must embrace God's Word. And here's how you can do that. Number one, you can embrace God's Word by ingraining it. What I mean is, memorize some of it. I've mentioned this before, but we do a great job of trying to teach our children, our, our, our young children, how to memorize scripture. And there are some passages that they will just learn, and they'll have it memorized, and they'll be able to spat it off to you at any point in time. And there are a few passages that I would guess that a vast majority of, majority of us can quote as well. Maybe, maybe we could collectively get through John chapter 3 and verse 16 together, or Matthew chapter 7 and verse 1. Or maybe I've already lost you because you didn't memorize the actual passage. (laughs) Or the book chapter verse part. There are some passages that have become so popular and so memorized that we've got it. But far too many of us stopped the practice of memorization a long time ago. Some of us have decided that I don't need to keep doing this because it's no longer my elementary school bible class at church but we need to ingrain god's word there's a passage in deuteronomy chapter 11 and verse 8 where the israelites were instructed to lay up these words of mine in your heart and in your soul that same text goes on to instruct them to bind god's word as a sign on your hand fix them as frontlets between your eyes and to write them on the doorposts of your house and your gates Now the point God was making, he's using figurative language here, he's not really expecting people to take a box and fasten it onto their forehead with scriptures in it, though the Jews did that for a good period of time. He's not expecting you to actually go out with a pencil or a pen and write on your doorpost certain texts, though some took that literally. The point God was making is is he calling, he's calling on his people to fix his words in their heart, to Tie his words on their hands, to bind his words on their foreheads, and to write his words on their door and gates. The, the whole point of all that is he's instructing his people to make his word dominant, for his word to be so preeminent in their lives that it is though they have done those things. Binding God's word to your hands signifies that it controls your actions. Affixing God's word between your eyes signifies that it guides your life, and writing God's word on the entrance of your house signifies that it governs your home. And while these instructions were taken literally by Jews for millennium, the idea is that embracing God's Word is is not about the physical manifestation of Scripture on your body. It's about the ingraining of God's Word on our hearts and minds so that we instinctively live by them. So ingrain God's Word. But in order to ingrain God's Word, there's something else you have to do. You have to interact with it. There's this passage in Acts chapter 17, verses 10 and 11, that might come to mind for some of you. There's a group of Jews in a town called Berea who demonstrated the importance of interacting with Scripture. They heard Paul teach, and Luke tells us in Acts chapter 17, verse 10 and 11, that they received the Word with all eagerness examining the Scriptures daily to see if these things were so. And it's this consistent interaction with the Word of God that's being displayed here by the Berean people that caused Luke to say this, to say that they were more noble than those people Paul had just encountered in Thessalonica. And there's two important observations to make about the, 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 these Bereans here. The first is that they did not accept what they heard at face value. They spent time consulting God's Word to find confirmation. In school, you're going to learn to cite your sources, right? You've probably already learned to do that some, but it's going to be drilled into your head over the next four years in college. If you don't cite your sources, what is it called? Plagiarism. And here's the thing, the reason you cite your sources is so that you don't plagiarize, but it's also so that you can confirm where you got your information. It's also so that you can prove that what you're saying in this paper you're writing, and get ready, you get to write some massive papers over the next four years. It's really, really fun. Part of the reason you cite your sources is to show that you have consulted somebody who's smarter than you are to declare this. Don't take something at face value. Confirm it. That doesn't just go for science and history. It also goes for Scripture. Some of you are going to be finding new church homes over the next few years. You're going to be on your own to determine where you're going to worship and where you're going to uh, uh, participate in a congregation, and you're going to be hearing preachers less fantastic than myself. Make sure you confirm what they say. Make sure you confirm what's taught where you are. Make sure that you consult God's word to ensure that where you are worshiping is teaching the truth. No longer is mom and dad going to be waking you up to go to worship. No longer is mom and dad going to be ensuring that what's taught in your Bible class or in the sermons is true. No longer are mom and dad going to be there to say, all right, we got got to leave this congregation because it's not right anymore. It's on you. So make sure you are consulting God's Word, interacting with it to ensure that what you're hearing and what you are thereby supporting by your very presence is truth. But also notice in Acts chapter 10, I mean, Acts chapter 17, verse 10 and 11, that not only did these Bereans... Consult God's Word. They did it daily. They engaged in this exercise every day. They studied God's Word, not just on the day they gathered for assembly on on the first day of the week. They did it every day. And they show us that embracing God's Word means that that we must be in God's Word on a consistent basis. Make sure as you make this transition and, and you are off on your own, starting your new life, that you're not forgetting to spend time in God's Word. If it hasn't been a habit now, make it a habit then. Because there's no greater tool for the growth of your life than the very Word of God. And so when Moses closes out his time with the Israelites, he puts the emphasis on embracing God's Word. And when we journey throughout Scripture, what we can see is that embracing God's Word is going to take ingraining it and interacting with it. And so as part of our closing remarks for you guys, we encourage you, embrace God's word, ingrain it in your life and interact with it regularly because that will be the greatest teaching tool you will ever have. Now let's go to Joshua. The guy that followed Moses in the leadership of Israel was Joshua. And there did come a time when Joshua's leadership had to end as well. And he provided closing remarks in Joshua chapter 24, verses 14 and 15, which we did read as our scripture reading, but I'd like to read that again together. In Joshua chapter 24, verses 14 and 15, Joshua said this to the Israelites. Now therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your father, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. In his closing remarks Joshua presented the Israelites with a choice. He told them that it's time to decide who they're going to be devoted two. And implicit within this choice that he presents to them are a couple of important truths that I want to point out to you. First and foremost, God is unwilling to share our affection with other little g gods. Think about that for a moment. Joshua presents this choice to them and says, you've got to decide right now who's going to be your God. You've got to decide right now who you're going to serve, who's going to have mastery over your life. Because here's the thing, you can't serve big G God and little g God at the same time. Jesus emphasized that in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 24, when he said, no one can serve two masters. You know why? Because God won't let you. If you're going to try to cohabitate gods, then the one true God is leaving the scene. Because The one true God tells us that he is a jealous God. In fact, go to the Ten Commandments, go to Exodus chapter 20, look at verse 5, and in, in the midst of the Ten Commandments, God says this, remembering that those first three commandments all deal with the worship of other gods. And in the midst of that, God says, I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. He admits it to us up front. And when God in those Ten Commandments basically says, I don't want you to have other gods, he's not really acknowledging that there's a competition of deities in control of this world. He's acknowledging that there's a competition of deities within your heart. That we have this tendency to elevate people and things to a position that belong only to him. And the point is, there's only room for one on the throne of your life. So you've got to choose who gets to sit on the throne. God's unwilling to, to share our affection with other little g gods. And so that means we have to make a choice about who we're going to enthrone in our lives. Not only that, though, this passage implies that God is willing to let us make that choice, to let us choose who we're going to serve. That's part of this thing we call free will. And so what that means is that God will let you chase those little g-gods that you want to chase. In fact, this is implied in Romans chapter 1. In Romans chapter 1 and verse 18, Paul explained why the wrath of God was going to be revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And it's because although they knew God, they did not honor him as God in verse 21. Instead, they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man in verse 23. And as a result, Paul says this in verse 25 of Romans chapter 1. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. In other words, Paul indicates here in Romans chapter 1 that some have chosen to worship someone or something other than the one true God. And Paul also indicated that God let them make this choice. Three times in Romans chapter 1, Paul said God gave them up. Now, that doesn't mean that God abandoned them or God turned his back on them. That means that God allowed them. God didn't cause their descent into idolatry. He allowed it because God will not force you to choose him. The choice is your free will. You may be thinking, but I don't participate in idol worship like the Israelites. I don't participate in a a religion that follows a different deity. So, categorically, I've chosen God, right? But the reality is that we choose other gods anytime we elevate someone or something to the position of master of our life. We can dethrone God and enthrone ourselves, we can dethrone God and enthrone an ideology. We can dethrone God and enthrone a material object or a person or a passion or a feeling or an experience. I mean, that's what ultimately happened in Eden, isn't it? Satan convinced Adam and Eve that they could replace God with themselves. You look at that temptation in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 5. The temptation was to become like God. It was a temptation to dethrone God and enthrone themselves. And they bought it. And we've been buying it ever since. Choosing things that are inferior to him who is superior. See, we have a choice to make. It is up to us to choose whether or not the one true God will be the supreme master over our lives. We have to make that choice individually. And here's the third thing you need to know about this choice. It will determine the direction of your life. I call such a choice a greater than decision. In other words, you're choosing who or what will be greater than everything else in your life. And greater than decisions determine our life's consequences for good or bad. Because your greater-than decision will govern your life from then on. For instance, raise your hand if you think dogs are greater than cats. Let's be honest for a moment. Raise your hand if you think dogs are greater than cats. All right, you are on my good side. Raise your hand if you think cats are better than dogs. Forget you. I'm just kidding, I'm just kidding. Raise your hand if you think Chick-fil-A is better than all other fast food restaurants. You are correct. The rest of you are wrong. (laughs) But here's the thing. When you make a greater-than decision like that, when you decide in your head that dogs are greater than cats, guess what? You're going to have a dog before you ever have a cat. If you make a greater-than decision like I did, that Chick-fil-A is greater than all other restaurants, fast food restaurants, let me say, then guess where you're going to spend all your money? Hey, I am, I, am a, I am the highest level of Chick re, Chick-fil-A rewards earner there is in the world. I never get below 4,000 points. <laughs> and I'm not kidding. Am I, Ben? <laughs> but it's because I made a greater than decision for various reasons. And so I'm going to eat here instead of there. I'm going to own this instead of that. I'm going to do this instead of that because of a greater than decision. And you can see this play out in Scripture. If you go to the book of Genesis, chapter 29, verse 30, you have this one little snippet of a statement that said, Jacob loved Rachel. Let me, hold on, let me get here. That Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah. In the lead up to that, you have Jacob who has fallen in love with this woman named Rachel. And he goes to Rachel's father and negotiates a price to wed her. Seven years of work. On marriage night... He gets tricked into marrying Leah because, as his uncle would say, Laban told him, it's in our culture, you got to marry the oldest off first. So he got tricked into marrying Rachel's older sister, Leah, who he had no interest in. He had to sign up for another seven years of work to marry Rachel, but we're told that that, 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 that time period of work for Rachel didn't matter to Jacob because he loved her so much. It seemed like days instead of years. And then after being married to both of these women, we're told Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah. Now think about how this affects the rest of his life. God looked down on that relationship, on that, on that family and said, okay, this isn't right. Leah's been forgotten about and, and, and Rachel gets all the attention. So guess what? I'm going to allow... Leah to be pregnant and have children while Rachel is barren. And so Leah starts having children and her favor starts gaining in the eyes of of Jacob to some degree. And eventually God shows mercy on Rachel. And she has a son. That son's name was Joseph. And Jacob is so enamored with this child from the woman he loved more, the woman who was greater than in his life, that that child became the greater than child. And it sparked this envy amongst all of his children that led to a faked death and a sell into slavery. Jacob's life was in turmoil from that day forward, from the day that he made a greater than decision on, because his greater than decision affected every part of his life. When he he decided that Rachel was going to be greater than Leah, everything thereafter was affected by that decision. My point is this. You have to make a decision about who you're going to serve, who's going to be your God. And until you, and when you do, when you make that decision, it's going to affect every part of your life. Because your greater than decision governs your life. And if you haven't decided that the one true God is the God you're going to serve yet, that's a decision you have to make. Because no one can make it for you. And guess what? Whatever decision you've made at this point is going to be challenged over the next four years. And there's going to be people trying to persuade you to choose differently. So what's your greater than? Because if it's not your greater than now, it won't be very long until you've got a new greater than. Are you going to choose God to be your greater than. I know I've already gone long. It's a commencement speech, right? So let me share this one last closing remark with you that comes from Jesus himself. In fact, if you were to read John chapter 13 through 17, you'd be reading one long closing remark from Jesus because between John 13 and 17, Jesus provides his final instructions to the disciples in this time period, between the conclusion of the Last Supper and his arrest in Gethsemane. And what Jesus instruct what I want you to focus on today is Jesus' instruction for his disciples to not be afraid. Look at this passage with me in John chapter 14, verses one through four. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to pre- go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. I find it so very fascinating that here Jesus talks about preparing heaven. Isn't that where all of our attention turns to on this passage? I go to prepare a place for you. But before he ever gets to that point, he says, Let not your hearts be troubled. That is a command found all throughout the Bible. It is the most frequently repeated command in the Bible. It boils down to this, do not be afraid, do not fear. That's what Jesus is saying. Before he ever gets to the point about, hey, I'm preparing someplace in heaven for you, he says, don't be afraid. Now, I find that so fascinating. Why did Jesus feel the need to tell the disciples to not be afraid? I think it's because disciples are notorious for being afraid. Peter was afraid when he realized who Jesus was after Jesus provided that miraculous catch of fish back in Luke chapter 5. The disciples were afraid when they were caught in a storm on the Sea of Galilee and Jesus was asleep below deck in Luke chapter 8. The disciples were afraid when they saw him walking on the water because they thought he was a ghost in Matthew chapter 14. Peter stepped out of the boat to walk on the water to Jesus, but became afraid when he noticed those winds and waves. Winds? That was bad. Matthew chapter 14. And all the disciples were afraid when they heard the Lord's voice on the mountain during the transfiguration in Matthew chapter 17. But more importantly, right here, in this moment, they're operating out of fear. Open up to John 13 and look at what happened right before Jesus says this at the start of John 14. In John 13, he has just concluded washing their feet. And in verse 31, he says this, John 13, verse 31, he says, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, Where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. That's John chapter 13, verses 31 through 35. Now, what part of that passage did you grab hold of? What part of that passage resonated with you? My guess is it's the whole love part. Because that's the one part of that statement or that passage that we emphasize. And you know why? It's, it's understandable. Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you. And if you're like me, when Jesus says, I've got a command, you're like, your ears perk up a little bit. You're like, okay, I want to do what Jesus says. So let's listen to this part. A new commandment I give to you, love one another. See, if, if it, that, my mind would be set on hearing that part, but not the disciples. You know what part they grabbed onto? It's the part that appears in verse 33. And you might have even just missed it as I was reading it. It's the part that says, yet a little while I am with you. That's the part they grabbed onto, Because that scared them. That's the part that created fear within them. Jesus is leaving us? You remember Peter tried to chop off a guy's head because he didn't want Jesus to leave. Peter's the one that confronted Jesus one time and said, nope, never letting you die. Forget about that. I'm putting a stop to it. They were scared of this part. They didn't even want to make the trip to Jerusalem because they were afraid somebody was going to try to kill Jesus. Let it, yet a little while, I am with you. That scared them. And that's the part they focused on. And that's the part they grabbed onto. And Jesus began then here in John chapter 14 by saying, Let not your hearts be troubled. Don't worry. Don't be afraid. See, here's the truth about fear. Fear is a tool of Satan, not a trait from God. Paul specifically said in 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 9 that God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Paul's words imply that fear has a source other than God. And that's where Satan comes in. Fear is a debilitating tool used by Satan to keep us from operating in faith. Satan used fear to cause Abraham to lie. Satan Satan used fear to cause Moses to make excuses. Satan used fear to make the Israelites give up hope. Satan used fear to cause Elijah to go into hiding. Satan used fear to cause Peter to deny Jesus. And Satan used fear to make the one-talent man bury his talent. Fear at best interferes with and at worst damages our faith. And yet, all too often, we choose the spirit of fear over the walk of faith. And such a choice can result in ignored responsibilities, unfulfilled potential, unused talents, unproven faith, or untaken stands. See, fear focuses on the obstacles and the distractions, while faith focuses on Jesus. Fear will keep us seated and silent while faith will cause us to stand up and speak out about what is right. That's why we were instructed in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 7 to walk by faith and not by sight. Because faith operates as if God is in control, while fear operates as if God is powerless. And so seniors, don't be afraid of what comes next trust in God because God's got this you don't but he does he always has there's a old story about a farmer who owned some land and he was looking for hired hands and always had a hard time getting somebody hired that would getting somebody who would want to do the job on the farm finally he came across this young man who was willing to take the job So he asked the young man what his credentials were, and the young man told about some of the different jobs he had had in the past. But he concluded by saying, when the wind blows, I can sleep. The farmer didn't really understand what he was talking about, but hired him. He was a good worker, did everything he was supposed to do. Then one evening a storm rose. Violent storm came up. Wind was whipping around. Things were flying, or, or limbs and debris were flying around. And the farmer jumped up out of bed, ran to the farmhand's room, and said, "Come on, you got to. We got to go tie everything down. The wind's blowing." The farmhand just looked up at him and said, "I told you, I can sleep when the wind blows." The farmer ran outside to the barn to start securing things. When he got there, he discovered that everything was already secured. He ran to the field to check on the animals and discovered that they'd all been put up. He ran around the house searching for all the things that he typically had to do to prepare for a storm, and everything was done. And then he finally understood what the farmhand was saying I can sleep when the wind blows because I've already made the preparations. Guys, you're about to leave your homes. You're about to leave what's comfortable to go into the uncomfortable. Have you prepared yourselves? Have you made the choice that you need to make your greater than choice to put God on the throne? Are you operating out of faith or fear? Have you put your trust in the one who's in control? Have you embraced God's word the way that you should? Because I believe if he'll do those three things in particular, you can be prepared for whatever storm life is going to throw at you, and you can sleep when the wind blows. Today we offer this invitation, not just to our seniors, but to all that if you need to make some correction in your life, that if you need the prayers of this congregation, that if you need the support of these people, that if you need to repent of some sin, or if you need to become a child of God by confessing your faith in Jesus Christ as the risen Son of God, repenting of your sins and being immersed in water for those sins, then we invite you to come. We want everybody to be able to sleep when the wind blows. And the only way you can do that is when you're right with Him. So if you need to be right with Him, please come while together we stand and sing. I believe in the one faithful oh Jesus. I believe He's still a stormy Galilee. I believe